On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're taking a look at the darker side of sitcom relationships in the rather directly titled Kevin Can Fuck Himself on Amazon, going full line of duty on a submarine with Saran Jones in Vigil on BBC One, beginning The Walking Dead's shamble towards the finish line in the 11th and final season of the long-running zombie adventure on Star, and yes, reveling in the majesty of the greatest show on television as we are treated to the televisual delight that is season two of C on Apple. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that celebrates its 150th episode today, 150. It's kind of hard to imagine that I spent 150 podcasts being called a bellend by my two co-hosts. And speaking of which, they are once again here to plague me today as we navigate this week's new shows, the Bubba and Edo Voss of modern TV journalism, Boyd Hilton and Terry White. How are we? All right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you, Terry. Now, this is not just our 150th episode, is it? It's also your penultimate pilot TV podcast before you you know, sail into the West, away to the undying lands, whatever it is that happens in Manchester. Uh, how are you feeling about this? <laughs> I will point out that I am already in Manchester. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm, I think you're painting a picture where I, I walk out of the podcast studio, get on a train, knapsack yeah. over my shoulder, bound for the brutal, cold, harsh, northern hinterlands. Um, uh, but what was the question? How am I feeling? <laughs> Uh, fine well i i uh signed off my final issue of empire magazine Um. last night so i think i have seven days left of gainful employment um i've been trying to work out how many bell ends i can fit in in seven full days and five working days so that um, description of the that's a description of the empire staff more than anything so uh so yeah but i'm um uh i'm all right actually like I'm gonna miss you guys, but you know, I'm sure I'll fill, oh, fill my life. Should we try everything. that again with conviction? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna miss you guys, James. I don't know about you. I'm getting the sense that we're taking this worse, much, much worse than Terry. I do. I yeah. do. I said she has got this kind of like shit. We're yes, devastated. I, you know, rather than sort of like tearily sort of walking out mm. of the podcast studio one last time, sort of head hung low. I get the impression it's gonna be like freedom, <laughs> and she'll just run down the street waving her arms. There in the will air. be certain benefits, but you know, of course. I'll miss you guys and everybody listening um, and everybody we talk to on Twitter about TV shows and row with and argue with and disagree with and uh, sometimes agree with. But, you know, life moves on. You've just got to be a bit more robust, James. Oh, oh she's brought out the robust word. She has, she has. I'm not robust enough. Um, but let's no. get into this next week because next week will be your last show. Yeah, well, we can talk mm. about it next week because it's a class <laughs> thing. When you're working class, you just go with it. Like, you know, just get I'm, on very with it. Good, I'm very good at change. Middle class people <laughs> think so much about life and about That's what's happening. That's so true. Just, life. Yeah. How dare we think about oh, life? God, I'm just going to sit here and think yeah. about life. Just get on with it. Shut yeah. up. When, you, when, you've, when you've got your food from the bins, then this kind of thing is, is neither here nor <laughs> Somebody texted me and said, I cannot believe you said about King Garage. <laughs> I don't worry. I don't feel anxious about putting the bins out. But actually, these days I do, which means I'm middle class. And I used to eat out of the bins. They were like, one of the best things you've ever said in a podcast. <laughs> oh, 
dear. Where are we going to find uh, another sort of like TV watching bin eater to uh, replace you on this podcast? I really don't know. But so I shall begin the search. Um, but in the meantime, Terry, what have you been watching on tick or not over the past week? <laughs> not on tick. I'm thinking about on tick this week again. Anyway, um, just like how, how grateful I am to be able to watch telly whenever I want. Isn't it amazing when you think about it? Isn't it amazing that the three mm. of us mm. could literally watch TV? Yeah. Not whenever we want, because we have a job, which is also I mean, our job is partly TV. to watch TV. But... But isn't it amazing? <laughs> I just think it's amazing. Anyway, kids these days will never know. They'll look. Um, so I, my TV watching has been light this week because of lo- the aforementioned life and the aforementioned uh, Empire Magazine closure, my aforementioned son's diarrhea. But um, <laughs> I, I want to talk about two things, one of which is um, uh, Dateline NBC. So I don't know if it's new to Sky or they've only just started promoting it, but Dateline NBC is a bit of a like a cult viewing thing in the States. Like a lot of women I worked with in New York were obsessed with Dateline NBC. And it's kind of like, it's like a magazine. Do you know what I mean when I say magazine show? No. So it's like, it's like a, it's, it's like a show that could like, it's like a magazine article, but on the telly. Right. (laughs) And so, and it, Dateline is a specific thing where essentially they tell a story of a crime. So I watched one the other day, which was about a student who was murdered and they interview, it's like a single camera thing and there's a host, there's like a journalist, journalist, I'm doing inverted commas, this is an audio Air quote journalist, yeah. Air quote journalist who basically interviews people, so the family and the police, they have quite shoddy reconstructions and then it's usually about how they solve the crime um and it's very satisfying because you know it's usually when a crime's been solved and how they got there and um but it's kind of i suppose not it's not exactly prestige tv is what i'd say now i think it's been promoted because they've just made a series of specials so somebody actually mentioned this to us on twitter the widower which is a 5 hour I think it's three-part saga about a guy who'd been married six times and four of his six wives are now dead. Um, And they're doing these specials. And I wasn't quite ready for the special because um, I didn't have the brain capacity. So I just started watching these random episodes of Dateline NBC. And it's so addictive. And it isn't particularly well-made. It isn't particularly enlightening. It doesn't really tell you anything about life, society or anything like that. But fuck me, it's really reassuring. And look, this might be my new kind of SVU, to be honest. Bear in mind, this thing's been going for decades and decades and decades. I reckon, like, I've got probably 500 of these to watch. So if you also have Sky, these are being promoted at the moment. I can recommend you uh, you go in and have a look. And I'm going to do The Widower this weekend. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to mention, and I talked about it at great length last week, so I'm not going to talk about it at great length this week. You'll be pleased to hear is The Handmaid's Tale because it was the penultimate episode on Sunday. This Sunday is the finale um, which people who've seen it in America keep saying to me, like, hold on to your knickers because <laughs> shit goes down. I just want to say again, like, I'm definitely not going to say what happens in this episode because it is a massive spoiler and, and I've made my point about it. But th- uh, let me just say, as a thing that's often been criticised for being kind of 
um, people always say it's like misery porn, right? Because it's such mm. what they go through, so traumatic, and to see that over and over and over again, and these women abused, and and what's made this uh, series fascinating, and actually part of the reason they had to free June was, and everybody knows that's what this season revolves around, is because of the pandemic, because they had to shoot differently. Um, they had to shoot in a certain location. And so part of that decision narratively was driven by the realities of the pandemic. Where that's put it in terms of it kind of shifting on from, from the uh, ground it covered before and being, once again, just a brilliant um, study of trauma and, you know, people always think about it, it's the, it's the bit when you're going through it, that's the most difficult bit. That's the bit that people are most interested in showing is the bit when you're in the pain and in the mess and in the hell. The bit afterwards is so fascinating and is such a rich ground, which often um, telly and film don't really get into. But a study of what happens next and about female rage and about how you can get over things, if you can ever get over things, about what's palatable in terms of survivorhood and victimhood. No, I just think it's absolutely fascinating and brilliant. And anybody who kind of, like me, got a bit mired down in the amount of women getting hurt over and over again that happened every week, do give this season a try because it's brought me fully, fully back into the handmaid's fold. And I am beside myself for the finale this weekend. Thank you. Wow. I promised you I wouldn't go on and on about it and then and, proceed and, to and go yet. on and on about it. <laughs> does this mean that uh, that you've been away from Dillon, Texas this week? Yes, it does. So I was I had so little time that and also I just wasn't kind of in the mind for it. But I'm determined to go back in this week because I don't want it to be a classic Terry White where I start watching so it get utterly obsessed and then just drop yeah. it like like <laughs> I've never met it before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's like me with men, really. Like, yeah, this is yeah. a parable, I think, for your dating yeah, life. Yeah, that is mm. like, I'm obsessed, I'm obsessed. You're oh, this person's oh the God. best person ever. Who? Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, literally. I was thinking about somebody the other day who I used to be obsessed with, and I can't remember the name now. Hmm. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Oh, God. Boydie, what have you been watching? Well, um, I've been watching brand new Cherry Flavor, which is a mm. Netflix series which arrived last week not only with very little fanfare from the Netflix people, I'm going to say with no fanfare whatsoever. With minus fanfare. My, yeah, minus fanfare. And it's really weird. I'm, I know I get bang on about this quite a lot, but it's been a while since I'm so I'm going to bang on it a bit. But Netflix, right, just just to, for, for listeners, like Netflix's promotion of its new shows is so weird sometimes. So there's like stages of it. Also, they send us like a weekly journalist covering TV. They send us a weekly list of shows coming up in the next three or four weeks, right? Yep. Date they're coming out and the details of each show. And that's the kind of, like I would say, like the A-list, you know, shows. So things like The Crown and Sex Education, we know all about them. Then there's like a kind, then there's a Netflix media centre thing, which is like a website where you go and you check all the other stuff. And that's a pretty comprehensive list of everything that's coming up month by month of, of other shows they don't mention in that weekly kind of list, right? And then there's brand new Cherry Flavour, which wasn't even on that list. <laughs> it wasn't even on the backup check or everything that's on every month list. And it just arrived last week in full, eight episodes, of course. And it's a really interesting, weird, freaky show. Deranged everything. But 
it's possibly the most deranged thing that's that's kind of aired without much fanfare since the OA series. Is this one. Is like a is it like a surrealist sort of horror? It's a it, yeah. It's basically like a it's basically a horror. It's almost like a realist horror, if anything. It mixes. It's half of it. It's created by Nick Antosca and Lenora Zion. Nick Antosca is famous for um, Channel Zero, which is a horror series yeah, yeah. on Sci-Fi, which I've never seen. I have to say. Um, it's incredibly like um, uh, David Lynch, like Lost Highway period David Lynch, to the point where the opening shot is literally going down the highway in the <laughs> dark, you know, that famous Lost Highway image. Yeah. It's literally that. It's the first shot of the whole series. And it does. it's not pretending it's not completely devoted to David Lynch, by the way. It's very heavily David Lynch of that period particularly. But, it's, uh, but the realism comes from, it's about a young um, female director played by Rosa Salazar, um, who was in Alita Battle Angel. Indeed. And she is arriving in Hollywood. She's made a short film, a short black and white kind of arty film, and um, it's captured the eye of a big Hollywood producer who's basically like a Harvey Weinstein-style creep. And um, she wants to try and get it made. She insists she wants to direct it. So it's kind of like Hollywood. It's all about Hollywood and making films and that process you go through and Hollywood kind of bigwigs and wannabes, talented people and all that. But then it's also about Catherine Keener is a mystical, spiritual tattooist who thinks she can ruin people's <laughs> lives by her own sheer will. Wow. And she has like a weird cat and um, that seems to have extrasensory powers and weird, really weird, creepy things happen alongside this kind of realism of observation of the fact that this creepy Hollywood producer guy wants to work with this young woman who's made this film. So it's like a really bizarre mix of um, one of these two elements. And I've, I've watched the first couple of episodes. I'm not fully on board yet, I have to say. I think it's it's so... I, I'm trying to get past the Lynchian element of it because mm. it's so much a, a kind of a, in, in debt to David Lynch. But... It's still really interesting. And Catherine Keener, I watch Catherine Keener in anything, and she is as phenomenal as you want her to be in this really bizarre role. It's also got manager Sintos in it, who's in Nine Perfect Strangers yes, at the moment. And he's like, um, he's like the, she's like his mate of, of the main woman, of Rosa Salazar's character, where she goes to sleep in, in his um, flat. And he's also got a girlfriend. So it's all of that stuff is very is quite is quite realistic and, and the dialogue's quite funny and clever and smart. But then there's this whole horror thing running alongside it. And quite how they bring the two together, I'll be fascinated to see. But it is really interesting. It's one of the most interesting new, brand new Netflix things for a while, and yet they didn't mention it whatsoever, as far as I'm aware, so to odd. any journalist. Yeah, it's weird. I was going to watch that, actually, based on a lot of people sort of mentioned last week, oh, you didn't review this? And I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, um, wow. But but again, since I said, oh, yeah, it's very David Lynch, kind of Twin Peaks to return, and immediately I was like, no, hard pass, hard Which pass. Which actually, you see, that, I don't think that's, it's not It's not so much Twin Peaks to return, it's the David other Lynch. phase. It's, it's the Lost, Lost Highway, highway. phase. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. That Which is phase. actually more Mulholland palatable. Mulholland Drive. Mm. Drive. It's very Mulholland Drive. There's a whole okay. there's a weird, creepy guy on a bike that's following her around. <laughs> who, and when he's unveiled, that's literally like something out of Mulholland Drive. Um, there's no one so, kind yeah. of materialising out of plug sockets. Mm, I mean, it could happen. Um, <laughs> it, it, we should say it's based on a novel by Todd Grimson, which I've never read either. But yeah, there we go. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe. We'll see. Um, I haven't watched that this week. What I've watched, Boydie... Is an animation. Whoa. Yes. Yes. So 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 Netflix knowing me as they do, dropped me a line and said, Hey, so The Witcher, Nightmare of the Wolf, which yes, I appreciate oh, here is we a go. film, so technically doesn't fit this podcast, but it's connected to the Witcher Universe and that's a TV show, so I'm allowing it. Um Hey, so do you want to watch Nightmare of the Wolf? And I was like, eh, 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 I mean, love the Witcher, but animation, really? 
But I found myself at a loose end and it was in my previous list. I was like, fuck it, I'm going to watch it. So I watched Nightmare of the Wolf. And do you know what? I really liked it. It really sucked me in. Now, now it could be partly because obviously it's steeped in Witcher mythology and you know how much I love that shit. So I was naturally kind of warm towards that aspect of it. But it starts with, it's got an arresting prologue. It starts off with a couple of like twin timelines. So it's about Vesemir, Vesemir, who we've seen in, um, well, no, we haven't, but we will see in uh, in The Witcher season two, who's kind of like Geralt's mentor at Kaer Morhen. You know all this stuff, don't you, Boyd? Um, but so it's kind of oh, yeah, like- I'm just, to be honest, I do, but I'm just watching Terry's face here. And this is one of those times where if only this was a video podcast, <laughs> then <laughs> it's like she's literally—it's like the face is freezing up into like yeah. Was it like, when how I long is this going to go on? Geralt's for? mentor at Care Morin. It was the fucking mention of Geralt that did it. I was like, <laughs> My mate Geralt. Oh Geralt! What uh, Geralt of Rivia? Oh, phonetics. Oh, of, Geralt. Do you know what the phonetics of the stuff you like really great on me? <laughs> it's like ugly hard. Geralt, like I don't know how long you're talking about fantasy shites when you start like mangling words. Oh, oh they do love a hard consonant, don't they? Well, oh. anyway, Vesemir, mentor of Geralt of Rivia. Um, so it's a bit of an origin story for him, and then there's an ongoing story which kind of talks or rather sets up how uh, how the kind of the Witcher institution came to be, how it is in this series as we watch it. Let's just leave it at that. But like I say, you know, I, I've often said, like, I, I struggle with animation. And weirdly, watching this, I realised one of the other reasons. I think my two things with animation are the barrier to entry, like the realism aspect of it. I can't get into it. Like, they, I feel the the visual of the animation is a barrier to me getting into the story normally. But the other thing that bugs me about all animation, especially adult animation, because I don't know why they do it in adult animation, is that... The voice acting in animation is very, very mannered, and people don't talk like that, and it really, really bothers me. It's just like, because, you know, very, very good actors often doing this voice acting stuff, and I don't know whether it's, you know, is it a conceit of the medium? Is it to compensate for the fact that there is no sort of visual element to their performance? But the voices are so mannered and so over the top. You're like, this, this, people, this is not how people speak. Like, it just, it really, really bothers me. And that's the thing that kind of goes across all animation, and there is a touch of that in this as well which did great with me but ultimately the story pulled me in and we talked about with what if that it had these sort of like action sequences that if they were live action we'd have said oh this is just brilliant but in animation it leaves you completely flat and i had this with uh, invincible as well where they have action sequences and i'm just bored and i'm looking at my watch and I'm like oh for god's sake it's just little cartoon characters hitting each other with sticks i don't need to see this it's very tedious and yet the action sequences in this genuinely i was like oh this is exciting like incredibly well staged a lot of the action in this and yes obviously it's witches fighting monsters and stuff but there's really good use of sort of focus there's really good use of kind of action staging and blocking in these in these sequences and i got really into it and again that's very rare for me with animation so i i devoured the witcher nightmare of the wolf uh and uh and yeah i do i do recommend it if you enjoy the witcher series and you have a greater tolerance for animation than 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 you know we generally do uh and even if you don't because i don't and i enjoyed it so yeah witcher this, Nightmare the Wolf. Is this like a 
Is this like a sock to the person who tweeted us that maybe we should have um, someone who comes in to talk about animation <laughs> once a month because we're all so shit? Well, maybe so shit about it. Game for fuck's sake! Why you're all you're doing? So everybody who who gets irritated by us being complete animation um, abysses, including as Boyd says, the gentleman who uh, suggested that as we're also lacking in that area, we should invite on somebody who did know what they were talking about. You just spent an entire time once again flagging off animation and then in a largely condescending way, you went, this one, animation is still shit, but this one, this one's actually good. Like, why did you do this to us? Why? I have stoked the Twitter hate fires once again, it can be said. Culture wall, culture wall, look what you're doing. An animation culture war. I mean, look, maybe this is it. Maybe this is a turning point. Maybe I'm now a changed man. This is my Damascene conversion, where the Witcher, <laughs> Nightmare of the Wolf, has drawn me into the animation fold, and I'll be like Rick and Mortying, and I'll be watching like Bojack Horseman and all of that shit. Uh, <laughs> well, can I just? I, I have a point to make about this, which I've been resisting making over the last few weeks. But fuck it. I think people insisting you have to appreciate. If not like, but you have to be able to appreciate animation. You have to be able, well, yeah, you have to like it. I think it's snobbery. Nobody is going, nobody chooses a genre that you, you hate reality TV. I do. You, nobody's up in arms. <laughs> comedies. Comedies. You hate comedies. Well, some, people are up, some people are up in arms. But, you know, people have stuff they like and they don't like. This weird insistence around animation grates on me because I think it's absolutely snobbery and elitism, which is people think it's a respected form, which it is, and therefore you have to know it and you have to understand it. Everybody has personal likes and dislikes, and I don't like fantasy, right? So does everybody is everybody going to come and tell me I have to be able to appreciate fantasy? Yes, hundred no, percent. It's, it's fucking stupid. Hundred percent because it's brilliant and it's the best things on I television. Just, it bothers me because I think it's I think it's gay keeping and i think it's elitist and i think it's a very specific view of what's good and what's not good and nobody's nobody <laughs> fucking sets the dogs on you when you bang on about reality tv which millions of people watch and appreciate and love or sitcoms or any as boyd says any of the other long list of things you don't like it's 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 specific i'm sorry men who think that animation is a it's some kind of uh no i know i've taken it too far but it doesn't matter it is some form and it's also because of the type of people who normally like animation oh. uh, what type of people are those terry I'm just saying. What type of people are I'm those? Saying, I'm saying, like, it's snobbery and it's elitism, and people like stuff and people don't like stuff. And I don't think we have to have a representative who likes animation to be able to talk on this podcast. Thank you and good night. What was, I agree. What was that film? You, the, the thing that sums up that snobbery they were talking about is that Anomalisa. Did you ever see that, that Charlie Kaufman um, film, mm. which was pointlessly animated when it could have been live action, <laughs> right? In my, in my humble opinion. And and, and his, I remember listening, his famously had an interview with Mark Kermode and Simon where he was, they were so pompous about that fucking film, <laughs> that annoying, pretentious animated film. And it summed up everything about that snobbery to me. Yes. I've got to be honest, Terry, when they draw the battle lines in the culture war between the reality TV stands and the animation elitists, I'm siding with the fucking animation crew. I've got to be shocked. Why are you saying that like that's, I guys, I'm going to have to tell you, you're probably not expecting it. <laughs> But I'm going to be with the dickheads. Yes, you're, you're two dickheads. <laughs> 
I'm going to miss this more than I can possibly <laughs> tell you. <laughs> I'm just looking at the list of Witcher characters. They are. Their names are insane. What? Kakir Moore Dapperin a Killer. That's one man's name. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. And you love it. You love it. You love it. You love it. Um, when does the next live action series start of The Witch? It's quite soon, isn't it? It's like it's December. Like, I think it's airing in December. Oh, December uh, 17th. It's on, it's, on, it's on the internet. There you go. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, The Witcher Nightmare of the Wolf drops on Netflix today on Monday. So if you wish to have an hour and a half of glorious Witcher themed animation featuring Vesemir, uh, mentor to Geralt of Rivia, then I suggest you watch it. I've also watched a load more Friday Night Lights, but you don't need to hear about that. I'm nearing the end of season four, so I'm on the home stretch. Jesus. Is this an official rewatch, by the way? Is, is it? If we oh, watch what, the whole my thing? Friday Night Lights rewatch? Yeah. What qualifies an official rewatch? Well, are you, you're, you're watching the entire thing. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, but you see, yeah, see okay. boy, boy right. do you need to understand? I don't, I don't do half measures. Like Heisenberg, no, I'm, I'm all about the full measures. When yeah, I start a rewatch, Boydie, I see it through oh, to the yeah. end. Although that said, yeah. my friend's one stalled before the end of season one, but less said about that, the better. Okay. Anyway, anyway, let us move on from this to this week's listener question, which comes to us courtesy of Jamin2846, who is clearly someone who puts significantly more effort than, say, Jamin247. Uh, they ask, apropos of nobody leaving soon, what fictional workplace would you love to join and in which role do you think you would flourish? Bonus round, it can't be Bartlett's administration. How well you know us. <laughs> Uh, it would clearly be Bartlett's administration. And what? What? Well, I've got, who would you be? Yeah. Josh. yeah. Who, who would I Josh. be? Josh. Uh, I mean, yeah. 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 Let's let's be honest. Yeah. yeah it would like be a Josh. less witty version of Josh. Yes, I'd be a more annoying Josh. <laughs> more annoying Josh. Just oh the annoying God. bits of Josh. Yeah. The 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 the, the nice bits taken out. The, the you know like the thanks <laughs> like. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, well, I picked instead of um, the West Wing. I did pick Veep because I imagining like Terry is like our Selena Meyer, like the president of this podcast, and then when she leaves, I could become um, the uh, the Gary Walsh, who is the character played by Tony Howe, who literally carries her back for her and just has to be on her side. <laughs> and kind of, he's known as the Body Man because you have to be there wherever she goes. Wherever well, that's she goes Charlie Young in like, the West Wing. Yeah, like the Charlie Young mm. Yeah, but I think the the, the it's more humiliating in the uh, in the Tony Howe Gary <laughs> Walsh situation. Of Veep, um, I could definitely do that. And um, or alternatively, you know, do you remember W1A, the brilliant um, comedy about life at the BBC that, that um, with Hugh Bonneville as um, head of values, Ian Fletcher? I could definitely do that role of head of values, where you kind of, you kind of like, <laughs> you you just swirl along in the background, and you kind of do quite well, and you kind of get, and everyone else is like rowing and arguing with each other, and you know, being being horrible or nasty or overly ambitious and you just kind of you know maintain your place and just if you maintain a kind of still presence and you say that's so that's all good is his catchphrase you can just kind of carry on and you could do quite well um so that would follow that maybe a bit of david brent in the office as well <laughs> yeah so i had i had david brent so yeah, somebody who used to work for me on another magazine said that i was a cross between david brent and Tony Montana from Scarface. And it's always stuck with me. And I think it's quite, I think it's quite uh, true. That's brilliant. I, I yeah. am a bit David Brent at times. I'm a bit like, hey guys, like <laughs> trying to be like, you know, get the vibes going, but nobody wants to do the vibes with me. Like when you started and tried to get us all to watch Over the Top with you. Like my first Christmas at Empire when I've been there less than three months and I was like, I know how to get these guys like, you know, on side and bought bags of Stellas and uh, put in my DVD of Over the Top. 
was like, I'm going to do an office screen and over the top, buy everyone beers. It's going to be brilliant. And I even arranged the chairs like a little screening. Can you remember? You did. Oh, I remember. And, um, and I sent a note telling everybody what time the film was starting and what time we could open the beers or the wine. I bought some wine for the ladies. And, uh, yeah, what happened then was... For the mostly teetotal <laughs> staff. So I went and sat down. Everybody else stayed sat at their desks right next to me. Um, it turned out I later discovered that barely anybody drank. Um, I think, like, two people drank. And in the end, Nick DeSamlian, soon to be editor of, acting editor of Empire... Came who was too afraid not to sit down, hence Scarface. Came and sat next to me for pretty much the entire runtime of Over the Top. Um, so, yeah, if, that, that's my David Brent moment. I would also say, um, so SBU in Liv's squad room. So I think I am Olivia Benson, really. She's got like, her team who she looks after and she protects. She fights for um, and she gives all to the victims. I know there aren't necessarily any victims at Empire, but, you know, I the, the, that squad room. That, but I think I'm Olivia Benson, and I think I'm in the SVU squad room. I would also say um, I used to when I was growing up, I went through a small phase of wanting to be a lawyer, and that's only because of Ali McBeal and that office. Mm. And she was remember, a dreadful like, lawyer. I, I know, I know, but like that office was amazing. They all had big offices. They had they unisex did. toilets. Mm. You remember they all the fuss over the unisex mm. toilets? I do remember. And they had the bar I loved downstairs. Peter McNichol in that show. Loved the biscuit. They had a bar under their office, remember? And that I was yes, like, oh with my Vonda God. Shepherd on the piano. Vonda Shepherd on the piano. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, when I get old, I'm going to work in an office with a bar underneath it where women with Vonda sing. Shepherd. Um, and then uh, last one would be um, Line of Duty. And I'd like to think I'd be um, Kate. Or Steve, but Kay actually got promoted over Steve, didn't she? So, you know. Um, Rightly so. Yeah, exactly. So I would be Kate, but I think really I'd be Hastings and I'd be, you know, a bit. You'd be Anna Maxwell Martin, is who you want to be. (laughs) Yeah, you'd be. Oh! 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 I've got more empathy than Anna Maxwell Martin, haven't I? Come in, set everyone on fire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just rewrite that feature, please. Fuck off. Do you know what? I think, I think, I think 2015 Terry was Anna Maxwell Martin. And I think 2021 Terry is still Anna Maxwell Martin. <laughs> yeah, you're now Buckles instead. Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh. Hey, look, I'm just saying you're a criminal mastermind, Terry. That's all I'm yeah. saying. You've got yeah. full age. Oh, God. I mean, part of me wants to join the Marine Homicide Unit from Annika, again, only to have that (laughs) fucking office, which I should point out. So someone called Christopher Patrick tweeted in this week to say that he used to work there. And it's the Beacon Arts Centre up there, which is where they filmed it. And he said, seagulls do, in fact, circle constantly outside the window. That is true. Not flock of seagulls. They're not performing. It's just the actual bird seagulls. Uh, But yeah, I I guess I could join that. I think I'd make an excellent belter loader in the expanse, you know, just sort of kicking back mm. at Sarah Station, that kind of thing. That could be that could be quite fun. I don't know, what would I like to do? Like Bartley Whitehouse is clearly the answer, but I'm not allowed yeah. to give that one. You know, I don't know that there's an obvious role for me on Deep Space Nine that I can think of. <laughs> 
you know? And you've thought long and hard about it. I have. It. Like, I don't think I'd be particularly good as the head of security. I think Odo generally is a lot better at that job. I don't think he'd be able to do it. I think if I was on the Enterprise... I mean, to be honest, mate, to be honest, you're, there's quite a lot of Spock in you, let's face it. You think? I mean, I, going, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, yes. he's quite condescending, like which is human, nice. Half human, yeah. <laughs> I know now why you laugh, yes. Yeah. Um, possibly. Possibly. His appreciation for comedy does rival my own. Um, yeah, I it's know, probably like, why you don't like the classic Star Trek, because you don't want to admit the uh, stop. <laughs> that's the, the like looking in the mirror. Yeah, I, yeah. I could be Guinan, you know, like in charge of the bar of 10 forward, but I don't really drink that much, so I'm not sure I'd actually be very good at that either. Um, if I were in Buffy, I'd 100% be the librarian. That I'm pretty certain of. You'd be, you would but, not I, be Giles. You said I'm more of a Wesley. You're all totally more of a Wesley. I'm sorry. Like, no way. <laughs> oh, I mean, the, I like the idea of being like Fitz in Cracker, you know, where the police call you in to just be really condescending and smug towards people. That'd be quite a good joke. Oh, yeah. I think I'd, I'd yeah. quite like that. Oh, you could do um, that, yeah. You know, could I, could I be a Doctor Who companion? Do you reckon I could pull that off? Oh, my God, you'd get kicked out of the fucking TARDIS quicker than you could turn around. <laughs> yeah. Like, explain, yeah. you trying to explain the TARDIS, a place you've never been and knew nothing about. <laughs> yeah. Driving to Peter Mark. Capaldi. Yeah. You're, you're more Peter yeah. Capaldi era Doctor Who. You are P- Peter Capaldi era the Doctor. That's okay. what you are. I could take yeah. that. Yeah. I could take that. Yeah. Or I could be like, you know... James of the House Dyer, first of his name, King of the Andals and the First Men, Khaleesi of Great Grassy, etc. I could try that on. Honestly, though, I think there's probably a place for me on this time as Alan Partridge. I think maybe that's my oh, yeah. that's yeah. my goal. You know, sitting yeah. on the sofa, being dreadful. Yeah. Maybe that's my future. Yeah, that's I true. I could fit in there. That is true. 100%. <laughs> Well, jam in 2846. I don't know if that answers your question, but I hope it at least goes some way towards doing so. Uh, if you have a question for us, do please send them to us via DM on Twitter at Pilot TV Pod, and we will do our best to talk tangentially around it. Let's move on to the news this week. Who would like to kick off with some exciting breaking news? Well, it's not exciting breaking news, but I think we should mention Sean Locke, mm. um, who died last week. And um, what I mainly wanted to mention was every, every, everyone knows him. I mean, there were so many clips of him on panel shows that he's in. Um, he he made almost single-handed, well, not single-handed, that's unfair, but eight out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, and you will be amazed by this, James, particularly, because I'm sure you just dismiss it as a comedy panel show. But that show has some incredible, I'm using the word incredible deliberately, comedic moments, indelible as well, comedic moments, and a lot of them all came from him. Sean Locke, who was a regular team captain on that show. There are loads of them. There's a, there's a brilliant one with him and Claudia Winkleman, um, which is on a lot of people have tweeted, retweeted, um, where he's riffing and um, about having, about instead of having rear of the year, he has anus of the year. Mm-hmm. And it is a hilarious, incredible bits that he does. And they re-showed his stand-up last week on Channel 4. But the thing that he was most proud of and the thing that really has to be mentioned in this podcast is 15 Stories High, which was his 2002 um, sitcom, which was on BBC Choice as it then was. It then became BBC Three in 2004 and um, was not then recommissioned. And it was one of the best. I remember in the, it was in the early days of Heat. I remember covering it there. It was a brilliantly written, he wrote it with Mark Lamar and his friend Martin Treneman, who's kind of his lifelong friend. And it was him and Benedict Wong starred with him in it as his flatmate. And it was just a kind of fairly freeform 
but brilliantly written and performed kind of sitcom, which kind of took the piss a bit out of the form. And in fact, on the I was looking at it today on the DVD, um, one of the DVD releases, it says on the on the cover of the DVD, the quote is the antidote to friends. Huh. Like that is how it was how they're marketing this DVD, which I think is so interesting. But it was like this is real life in sitcom form. And it was superbly done. And the nightmare, and it was it was repeated. It was very very rarely repeated. It was repeated a few years ago, four, about four years ago on Gold, when they had this like late night um, segment on Gold where they'd repeat kind of edgy shows. But it's almost impossible to get hold. of. I was looking today on Amazon, and the DVD release, which I've got somewhere, is one hundred and twenty five pounds on Amazon to get it on DVD, and it's not on iPlayer. I mean, I just hope the BBC repeats it soon because it is such a brilliant show that he will always remember for as long as, as well as his brilliant stand-up etc yes very incredibly incredibly sad there is going to be allegedly a field of dreams telly show oh there yeah. is from michael sure yes who we know as the creator of the good place and brooklyn 99 so what do we know so far she says trying to find the story if we shoot it they will come yeah very good Peacock, right? So it's a Peacock commissioned yeah. show. Mm. They've done a straight series order, um, but I don't think we know anything at all about any potential cast, um, kind of exactly what it's going to be. But he's good, right? Michael Shaw knows, knows oh, absolutely. his way yeah. around a TV show. Yeah. Did you see they did a Field of Dreams like thing, didn't they, last week, where ke- actual Kevin Costner and his real son did a recreated a bit of Field of Dudes with an actual field in the place where it was shot did in they? Utah, I wow. think. I Iowa, that. Sorry, in Iowa. Yeah, it was a whole thing just to kind of commemorate that they created an, an actual baseball pitch yeah. on where they filmed it in Iowa. And it was like to commemorate that. It was weird, it, but, but I, it's one of my favourite films and I love it. And so I'm kind of interested in the idea of a TV version, yeah. Let's hope the ghost of shoeless Joe Jackson makes an appearance. <laughs> exactly. More importantly, though, <laughs> did either of you watch the Foundation trailer? No. Yes. What did you think, boy? Did it blow your mind? It, it did blow it a bit, yeah. It, it made me... Um, I mean, we had the teaser, didn't we? And we've I had said, a teaser. I remember, we've now got a full we've had the teaser. trailer. Yeah. It looks it looks stunning, yeah. I mean, it does look stunning. I, it got me very excited for it, yeah. I, I threatened to watch this last weekend, but actually didn't get the screeners in time. But I, I have got them now, and we'll watch them this weekend, and I am very excited about it. What I'm really into is it just looks so impenetrably dense. <laughs> it's possibly the most me thing ever like you watch that trailer i don't know what this is about at all i mean i do kind of because i know the synopsis of the books but you watch this you're like i don't know what's going on and i am a hundred percent here for this incredibly dense there can be hard consonants all over the place terry you will absolutely hate it (laughs) is this um what we'd call hard (laughs) sci-fi it's definitely impenetrable sci-fi um yeah it's it spans millennia much mm. like my introductions. And uh, and I think, you know, <laughs> we'll probably exhaust a lot of people. But yes, I, I think it's very exciting. It's one of these things where it feels, you know, because it's Asimov's foundation, it feels like it's the kind of story told in the same breath as Dune, which obviously we're seeing in cinema later this year from Denny Villeneuve. And I kind of feel like, and someone mentioned this on Twitter, like we're more likely to see the whole of the foundation story play out on Apple than we are to see the second part of Dune play out in the cinema. Even though Denny Villeneuve is apparently hard at work writing the screenplay for Dune Part 2, mm. um, you know, that film has got to make a decent amount of moolah at the box office for them to actually get the green light to shoot it because it's not a cheap thing to do whereas i get the impression from apple they're like yeah fuck it do 15 seasons of foundation it's fine yeah because that's what i was i mean they've got enough money well, yeah. that's exactly. what Sorry. I was wondering is it's it, obviously everybody's aware that this in terms of production budget this is massive but mm. presumably when you make hard sci-fi 
you're kind of restricting your audience to the likes Me. of you. So, <laughs> Me and my animation friends. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm just, I'm interested in how kind of what their approach is there because obviously they're not about scale at that point. They're not about, you know, getting anybody with passing interest in sci-fi into this world. It's the hardcore. Well, see, Terry, we are the movers and shakers. We are the influencers. We are the people who you want watching your show. Clearly, that's what it is. Who the fuck do you influence? Well, Dave- <laughs> Yeah, only the I mean. diehards. Well, the diehards, the, the, the army. But in, David Escoy, I'm just reading now the interview with him where he said that he wants 80 episodes. Yes. As, as do so, I, David. As do I. Have you actually read the books, James Dyer? Foundation? No, I haven't. I have not read Foundation. Oh, okay. Well, um, there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. 80, 80 books. And he pitched it as um, the, the, it's telling a story that takes place over a thousand years. <laughs> There you go. So that's yep. enough for Apple. To, I mean, everyone wants. Uh, there is a world, isn't there, where even though it's really hard sci-fi, the books, the, the TV version, and I, I know it did look a bit impenetrable from the, but uh, in the way that Game of Thrones trailer would look a bit, yeah, hundred percent. Well, yeah, and it actually so was surprisingly. Wants, that's the dream. Yeah. Isn't yeah, everyone wants a new Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's why Amazon's doing Lord of the Rings, and I have to say, I'm much more excited about Foundation, hard sci-fi as it is, than fucking Lord of the Rings. Well, it's a bit interesting, is it? Because Game of Thrones, for all its fantasy, was very relatable. It was about people. It was about people fucking each other over, sometimes literally, (laughs) sometimes figuratively. Whereas, you know, something like Lord of the Rings is going to be very lore-heavy. And this foundation thing, I think, is heavily steeped in lore and world-building. And if someone like me, you you live for this shit, it's going to be great. If you're someone like Terry, who has absolutely no patience for anything that isn't set on a council state, then, you know, frankly, you're going to (laughs) struggle. I just wow. like things not to be fucking stupid, uh, as, I'm, as I'm sure we'll get into later when we come to reviews. I cannot wait. Speaking of things that Terry will find fucking stupid, Tim Robbins is starring alongside Rebecca Ferguson in another Apple show, which is Wool, which is an adaptation of the Hugh Howie novel. Now, I don't know if either of you have read Wool. I know for a fact that Terry won't have. Because uh, when I say wool, it's not like wool, the threadbare cardigan worn by a crack addict somewhere in like fucking north of England. No, this is wool. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's set in the future, Terry, where humanity lives in sort of nuclear silos below the earth. And the worst thing that can happen to you, the worst punishment, is to be expelled from the silos. And they have to clean this sort of lens thing when they're sort of expelled from the Anyway, I won't ruin the story for you because it's actually quite We know you but- love to be in a silo. So yeah. that's good, I do enjoy it? being yeah. in a silo. Yeah. But what's interesting about this is so huge. <laughs> Howie was is famous because he was one of the big self-published authors. So Wool was a series of, mm. of stories that he self-published online, became a runaway success, and then he got a publishing deal off the back of that. And he's made an awful lot of money out of it. So, you know, w- w- it's a great story. It really is. Uh, so, and now to have like people like Rebecca Ferguson and to have uh, Tim Robbins in it, good people attached to a good story. What more could you possibly want? It's being a show run by Graham Yost, who did Justified and the Americans. So it's on a very safe pair of hands there as well. And it's uh, it's a ruined, the, the logline is, I think, uh, wool is set in a ruined and toxic future. <laughs> well, I mean, sure. Uh, we can certainly uh, imagine that. Uh, where a community exists in a giant silo underground, hundreds of stories deep. There, men and women live in a society full of regulations they believe are meant to protect them which is vague and tells you next to nothing. But suffice to say, it is a good story, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Boydy, there was Frasier News. Oh, was there? Oh, what? I didn't see that. Well, just okay. the, it's, um, I mean, I, I use the word news. On Peacock? 
loosely. Uh, Kelsey yeah, Grammer talked a little bit about it. Oh, okay. So I didn't see that. Maybe there wasn't so much news as there were a few words said where he said, it's taking a long time to pull together because we are negotiating with everybody. Apparently, it's very difficult to get everyone back. So that's what right. is holding up the Frasier revival. They want everyone back. That is Kelsey Grammer's dream. So there you really? go. Really? Yeah. God, they're going to have to deal with it. I mean, I know Daphne and Niles, they're going to have to split them up for a start because the whole show went pe- slightly pear-shaped when they got together. So, um, yeah. Less Did you see, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, you remember the capture, the, um, yes, the BBC, excellent BBC thing with your favourite, Holiday Granger, <laughs> yes. James. Um, you, do you see the thing that season two has a guest lead, Papa Essiedu, from I May Destroy Ooh, You? Nice. Yes. That's incredible. Yes. So, yeah, it's brilliant. It and he played, and... I think it's back. I think they're filming it now-ish or soon. So I think I think it might be for, before the end of the year. And um, he plays as well a young rising star MP with ambitions for the very top. Ooh. So I'm very excited about that. And Indira Varma, who's always brilliant, and oh, Andy Nyman, who's also always mm. brilliant, are in it as well. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's that's great. That was a yeah. really compelling show. I'm looking forward to that coming yeah, back. Yeah, really good. Really interesting. Did you either of you watch the Star Wars Visions trailer? No. No. <laughs> Look at Terry's face. Isn't this like, animated? Yes. Like, Isn't animated? Dinner, fuck. <laughs> I'm, waiting, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for our animation expert to come in yeah. once a month to explain it to us. Well, boy, as we've established, I am now the animation expert. So yeah. uh, perhaps I should talk yeah. about this. I mean, it's batshit. It's got like a drum and bass soundtrack. It's kind of an anime, Star Wars Jedi Samurai anime. Um, it's It's got a date as well. It's arriving on uh, Wednesday, September 22nd. Uh, it looks nuts. Absolutely nuts. I'm not sure it's... You know, even as now as a newly converted animation stand, I'm not sure it's mm. quite up my alley. But uh, hmm. well, there's going to be a lot of fighting. So there's going to be a lot of animated fighting. There I mean, is, it can't be avoided, is. can it? Your and it looks like massively overblown, over the top action as well. So it looks it looks pretty spectacular. And the actually the art style is really interesting. So that is coming as well. But more than that, AMC cast their vampire Lestat which I was really excited about. It's Sam Reed, who, let's be honest, I'd never heard of, so I can't be that excited. But he's an Australian actor, and I have no visual qualms about him playing Lestat. I have no issues. So I guess that's positive. But this is exciting. I'm totally psyched for this show. I really am. By the expressions on both of your faces, I'm assuming I am alone on this particular <laughs> island. What is happening? Vampire Lestat has been cast. So in Interview with the Vampire TV series, which is coming, finally, because it's been the rights for that property have been circling for years. We're getting a TV series, and they have cast a gentleman named Sam Reed as Lestat de Leoncourt, the Brad Prince of Vampires. Right. Was he the one played by Brad Pitt in the film? No. No, that, of course, uh, is Louis. Tom Cruise. Uh, no, it was, oh. that was Tom Cruise's character. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Okay. But he's kind of, he's the, he's, so, so in the novels, Anne Rice's avatar was very much Louis in the first one, but then she switched to Lestat for subsequent novels and he became her, her protagonist. So. Didn't so Anne Rice's son take, right, right, end up writing. He's um, written books with her. Yeah. 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 He has, uh, they've, they've collaborated I, on stuff. Yeah. I think I reviewed one of his books on the radio with him there. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> did you? Well, that must have been sure. awkward. <laughs> yeah. We did that every week for years. Yeah. <laughs> Um, did you see the pictures of Elizabeth Debicki and um, yes. Dominic West? Yes. Mm. Oh, my God. From the she, crown. I mean, I've talked about this before, didn't I? Especially when we reviewed um, the last season, which obviously had Emma Corrin as Diana. And I kind of, I was probably the only person, I think, who wasn't completely swept away by Emma Corrin. But, but Debicki, for me, is there's just something, even before you mm. saw her in costume, I could just felt it. And then when you saw that picture, it was unbelievable, wasn't it? Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Dominic and, and West's him as well. Dominic facial West as well. expression yes. yeah. is extraordinary. Like, I can almost hear yeah, the voice brilliant. just from looking at his yeah. face. Yeah, and it's yeah. amazing because so, every time they, they announce those castings and you're always like, half the time you're just like, don't get it. And I really didn't see him as, as Charles. Um, but then as soon as they release the first in character shots, every time they fucking nail it. Yeah. I can't wait to see John Lee Miller as John Major. Oh that's, the, that's the one. <laughs> that, I mean, is that, is the one. <laughs> that is it. That is it. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's steer this back to my alley. There's been some casting, Terry, <laughs> that I think you'll get on board Oops. with. So, The Witcher Blood Origin, you will remember, oh. is set. <laughs> yes, it's set. I think 1,200 years before the events of the main Witcher series. But there has been some casting news for this, and and I shit you not, Lenny Henry and Dylan Moran oh, have yeah. both signed yes. on to star yes. in The Witcher Blood Origin, and I Dylan am Moran. fucking here for this. Dylan Moran, I believe, is how it's pronounced. Is it though? I think it might be right in an Irish way. I think yeah, it is. And the only reason I say this, the <laughs> only reason I say this is because I always called him Dylan Moran and then I went to see him live once. And I think I've said this on this podcast before. And the yeah. compare, when the compare introduces, you know that thing when the comedian introduces themselves and they say, and coming up now is, and it's their name. Mm. I think, I'm pretty sure it was him doing it and introduced himself as Dylan Moran and then he came out. And I was like, oh, is that how it's pronounced? So yeah, yes. It's like my Christ- Christopher Noth story. You know my Christopher Noth oh, story. Oh, that's right. And he's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Noth. I, I introduced him at an event as Christopher Noth and he himself went Noth. <laughs> there you go. Oh, so yes, well. Dylan Moran will be playing some kind of sorcerer or something in The Witch of Blood Origin. But Lenny Henry. Oh. But Lenny Henry is in Lord of the Rings. So he's doing, he's yeah, doing fantasy, yeah. big fantasy. See Terry. See Terry, he's getting his fantasy on. He's a convert. He's on board. He might have always been on board, yeah. you know. You don't yeah, know. He's probably a huge fan well, of fantasy. Because he's a comedian, he can't like fantasy. <laughs> because those with a sense of humour can't enjoy fantasies. That- <laughs> Terry's uh, just put Terry, what? <laughs> Terry's to, to, just put dark glasses yeah. on. That's to why to say almost- that to me, to put me down there, Terry puts on some sort of shades. <laughs> I'm not, is that because yeah. you're throwing shade and this is just, a prop to I illustrate that? like that delivery would work better if I was wearing sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? Uh, well, anyway, Lenny Henry is playing a character called Baylor. Do you like that name, Terry? There were also pictures this week of. Um, I know this news is dragging on, but this is. I, this is. I, there's quite a lot of quite interesting news, which is the Olivia Coleman show, Landscapers, the Sky Atlantic um, show coming up. Looks really interesting. Her and David Thewlis. I mean, what more could you want? Incredible. I interviewed right. David Thewlis recently. A what an incredible man! But this, those incredible two together, that's like. Magic. Exactly. Magic. The dream. Coleman Thulis playing um, playing a married couple whose lives are upturned by the discovery of dead bodies in the back of their garden. I mean, fucking hell, yeah. That is going to be good. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Ryan Murphy yet this week, Boydie. Oh, what's he doing? Not only has American Horror Stories... Yes. which we will be reviewing soon, been reviewed for a second yes. season. But he's also announced American Love Story and American oh, Sports yeah. Story, both of which have been ordered to series at FX. I mean, where's American Fantasy Story, Ryan? Where's American Sci-Fi Story, Ryan? Christ. The Ameri- it made me laugh because you remember that bit in um, Watchmen, in the TV series of Watchmen, where they take the piss out of a kind of Ryan Murphy yes. type show. And American Sports Story is basically what they were taking the piss out of, mm. kind of in that brilliant bit in that show. Yeah. So, I mean, Ryan Murphy's, by the way, what a life. I mean, he's got he's got a deal with Netflix worth gazillions <laughs> and billions, and he's still doing loads of shows, even more shows for FX. It's absolutely extraordinary. Extraordinary. Well, I think the first one of uh, is it American Love Story is going to be uh, the love story of John F. Kennedy and Carolyn Bessette. I don't know what the first mm-hmm. sports story is going to be. I can only assume it's going to be the Dylan Panthers and their rise to power. 
I think we God, that would be weird. It wouldn't that be weird? Imagine that. Have we flogged yeah. news to oh death at this God. point? Yes. I mean, I lost interest about seven minutes ago. But... I mean, I think you... the, dark gla- the sunglasses coming on. I think on. you lost interest when I started talking about Nightmare of the Wolf about 40 minutes ago. But anyway. I have no um... idea what you're talking about, so I would assume so. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin then this week's reviews and first up this week and where else could we possibly start than with a show I've been waiting nearly two years to return. Apple C. Uh, Stephen Knight's show depicts a post-apocalyptic world in which everyone is blind except for a few sighted people who have begun to emerge and are hunted as witches. Two such are Haniwa and Kufun, the children of the brilliantly named Baba Voss, played by Jason Momoa. And at the end of last season, we saw Haniwa kidnapped by a mysterious general, who it turns out is none other than Edo Voss, Baba's estranged younger brother, played by Dave Bautista. Can Baba rescue Haniwa from Edo? What will happen to Magra now that she's accepted her birthright? Will Queen Kane keep up with her penchant for furious wank praying? All shall be revealed in C's triumphant return. Isn't that right, Terry? Well, I mean, you kind of just did the review, but yes, sure. Um, which I think it's actually good that you did the review because James has a thing listeners you may be aware of this that when there is something that is entirely not my speed that I absolutely will not understand that is going to go right over my head no matter how many times I watch it of course he makes me lead on the review because he thinks it's funny however listeners it is my god right so i'm sorry this is really 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 fucking stupid like i think we just need to establish that from the kickoff so i was like okay so the basic premise as far as i understand it is there was a virus that yeah swept the earth and Indeed. the next generation, so the children were... We're about 100 years on, I think, right. also. They were left blind, but there's these random people that can see. But actually seeing is classed as a curse or like flipped on its head of how I suppose it is now where it's seen as being able to see is a plus. Or are they evil because they can well, see? Well, yeah, they, so they see it as like witchcraft. Right. They treat them as like freakish, freakish freaks. So this... And we should say that this is now, because obviously it's created by Stephen Knight. This season's showrunner is Jonathan Tropper, who I believe yes. is Banshee Man. And Warrior Man, Banshee. a.k.a. one of my favourite people. A.k.a. knows his fucking way around a stupid TV show. Um, so, <laughs> so this this thing is so fucking... Brute, like, are you not shocked by the violence? Like, I know you watch shows. And this this review, by the way, is going to be me and you having a chat about this because I've got some questions. Like, ah. I know you watch a lot of violent stuff. All the stuff you watch, there's, like, horrific murders. Like, the first, that- the bit, just the opening set piece, which is Baba and yes. the Queen. She's the Queen, right? Um, And that his son are basically they get in a well they don't even get in a fight they basically torture some people in the opening scene which is well, like it's horrific it's, that's technically not the queen that's paris she's a doesn't matter anyway carry well, i was on. trying to work out i was like is that meant to be his mum? because i just don't think they go together no. but anyway well so, alfred woodard is not jason momoa's mum. no so, no not his his son's mum. oh no it's not it's not the son's mum. no okay. and the son isn't baba voss's son either but that's a that's whole other thing why does he call him my son? Why it's his he go- adopted son. Oh, 
So, yeah. He's Jerlyn Morell's actual son. You can see my confusion, right? Um, (laughs) But she is a matriarch figure to him. She is. Yes, yes. She's she's almost like Barbara Voss's adopted mum. Because he says, you know, so he (laughs) says at one point he's going to go off on this mission and he says, if I don't come back, you're going to be all he has in the world. So the son has been basically, from what I can tell, has been cosseted a little bit and doesn't know the art of survival because Jason Momoa never wanted him to go through the brutal fights that he's had to go through in his life. Jason Momoa just casually skins somebody and like teaches him. <laughs> like honestly, I, I, I really hope children don't watch this show. It's so <laughs> hardcore. The killings are so brutal. Um, also, what's with the? It's like echolocation, isn't it? It's like it's, it's, this is why why this show is so good. The attention to detail is extraordinary. That like they have really thought through what would the world be like without sight. Like wow. how would people get around? And they so it's like you get special people who are have particularly keen sense of smell. People who have particularly sen- keen sense of hearing. So it's really it's really I get, interesting. I, and I, I think what they've done. I think well, let's talk about what's good. I think the world building is good. I think it mm. looks incredible. Also, the D- doesn't DOP on season one was Joe. Willems, I don't, I, I'm assuming it's the same cinematographer. It looks astonishing. I mean, I can, you can smell the money on the screen. It, it makes you want to move to Canada, is what it wants. Yeah, makes you want to I do. I won't get that far after I just watched somebody be skinned alive. But <laughs> it looks Canadians do do that. Absolutely <laughs> insanely good. You really, I mean, you, t- you have to. Sus- I would, I wouldn't even say suspend disbelief. I'd say remove any logic and common sense from your brain and park it on the floor next to the settee because you're not going to need it for the next hour and two minutes. An hour and two minutes, by the way. Um, so I and I think we're going to disagree on this, right? Is you think that there are bits? That I think the there there is there are clumsy elements to some of the um, acting when you have seeing people pretending to be blind. And I know it's acting. I'm not saying that everybody in the show should be people who are registered blind. But they're a bit, I find it really hard to believe that these people have lived with outsides for their entire lives and things are still very overdone. Things that I do, mannerisms and, and physical kind of actions and movements that I struggle to believe somebody who'd lived without their sight their entire life would do. And I feel like it's exaggerated because they're trying to remind you that they're blind because that's the premise of the show. But so I I struggle with that. And I know they used um, consultants on the show. I know that they have certain people within the cast who are without their sight. I thought there were bits of it that were really, and clumsy is the only word I can think um to use and then i'm sorry but part of it goes out the fucking window when they're having a fight so they have a fight and suddenly it's kind of you they act like they can see like terry have you never seen blind fury or the book of eli this is all completely understandable also let's think about the end of is it um the end of blood sport or kickboxer i always get the two conflated where they he throws sand in john claude van damme's eyes and he has to fight blind Look, so they are very keen to show that this is now a world that's built around the other senses, the remaining senses, and how that would inform how people live, how people fight, all of that. I don't think it's perfectly executed. And I think the fact that they have people... I mean, there are moments with Jason Momoa where he looks like a man trying to pretend not to have his vision. Like, that's the reality. Um, I 
don't exactly. think that's the fight, true. The fight scenes are very well choreographed, but literally they suddenly forget they're meant to be blind. Um, it's incredibly brutal. It's incredibly <laughs> bloody. It made me feel a bit it sick is. at points. Dave Batista is Baba's estranged brother. I mean, there is probably not going to be a better bit of casting this year. Fuck me, it's hilarious. It's, <laughs> it's brilliant. He's like a cartoon character. I ca- it, it makes it makes Jason Momoa look like a subtle kind of nuanced <laughs> guy. Dave Bede- in a good way, Terry. Dave Bedisa's like covered in scar. He's like. 15 feet tall. I mean, it's ridiculous. But can I just say, there is a charm. I will go as far as to say there is a charm about the show, and I'll tell you what that charm is born from. That charm is born from everybody's acting like they're doing Shakespeare. So the Mm, actors are so earnest and Mm -hmm. so like my art. I am here doing my art. (laughs) This is like Julius Caesar. And there's something yeah. infinitely charming about the lack of self-consciousness when they are saying the most ridiculous stuff, and just existing in the most ridiculous scene. And they take it so seriously that that kind of you can't help being drawn into it in that respect. And because the world is so richly drawn, which it is, and because the um, cinematography is so beautifully done, it by the end of the hour, I was kind of drawn in to this world, and it is still fucking stupid. And it is, there's still bits that are like also tone deaf. There's there's a, something uncomfortable about the primitive. It's meant to be near future, I think, but there's something primitive about what the, happened to the world when the next generation lost their sight. But then also they, I don't know if Trivant is it Trivantis. Which is, Trimantis, yeah. which I don't know if this was part of season one, but this is kind of a more, I'd say, prosperous city. Yeah, and no, shows, this is this is season two. Yeah, shows a more sophisticated humanity, which I think is probably more appropriate and less. There's, there's just something uncomfortable about that premise that the world would regress essentially if if. Well- uh, everybody lost their thoughts. I don't think it was just blindness. It wasn't like a Triffids thing. The idea, I think it killed most of the people in the world. So they had to stop. And the few that remained were blind and obviously didn't have the skills to yeah. continue a modern civilization. And so everyone kind of regressed over generations. So this, and there's nice little touches, right? There's somebody performing, um, uh, what song was it? The Ruby Tuesday. <laughs> Ruby Tuesday. There's like, yeah. there's, there's little moments like that, which, are, which I, I really enjoyed. So look, am I going to keep watching it? Am I fuck? But was I <laughs> wildly entertained and compelled for an hour? And does it do, if you are into this, does it do what it does very well? Then I would say the answer to that question is yes. If you are a James Dyer kind of person, <laughs> this will be like your Christmas day. If fantasy and this kind of fantasy, which lacks kind of any logic... Um, if that rouses you up, this is this is gonna kick on every like little sore patch you have. So I would I would stick it. But I will say that I think this is probably the best done of these kind of things. It's amazing, Terry, is what you mean to say. So genuinely, this may be, it's certainly one of my favourite shows on television. I absolutely fucking love this show. And it's part of the reason why I said I think the world building is almost peerless. They've thought it through so carefully. It's just even that there's a big battle sequence season one and it's an incredibly tactile military clash. 
but it's just genius the way it's put together. And the first time you see Bubba Voss in action, because the whole point of season one, you, you you get this sense that Bubba Voss has this very dark past, which we're exploring in season two. But I mean, the man can start some shit. And the kind of this this choreographed blind fighting they come up with, I think is incredible because it is all sound and feeling based. And bearing in mind that it's quite a long time after they lost their sight, this whole world has been recalibrated for four senses instead of five. The entire world, their whole existence, which is why there's a sequence in the first one where his son, even though he can see, can't outfight Bubba Voss because Bubba Voss has been fighting his entire life and he's competent. He doesn't need his sight to do it because he's used to kind of the feel and the movements and all these sort of various things. And I love that they've they've thought it through. So there's even been almost like an evolutionary bit where you get certain sort of sense sort of people who are there are people who smell particularly keenly as i mentioned people who hear keenly and they're sort of empaths who sort of are tuned into people's emotions which is a kind of almost feels like an esp type thing and then there's this idea and you don't get it in these two areas of the shadows which are kind of like spies who can move completely silently and they sort of you never know where they are or who they are when they're about um but all this stuff, there's just such a real sense of place to this. I love the kind of decay of this world, the way they're all living in the shell of our civilization. And I just find it really compelling. And yet, sort of the character moments, you know, it's a very classic story. Like he's rescuing his adopted daughter. There's a, another brother. Like these are really broad tropes, but they're really, really well done. And as you said, they act their little socks off. They really do. And I've got so much time for shit like this that takes itself incredibly seriously, <laughs> but really commits, like, properly commits to this premise add to the, that the fact that jonathan tropper really fucking knows his way around a fight sequence like really does uh and i can it's really sort of stepped up that aspect of it in this season like they only gave me three episodes of this to watch and i was bereft when i got to the end of the third one because i must have more in my face and i must have it now there are so many good new people in this um and it's not just the bubba voss edo voss thing you've got the sort of queen kane who's had uh, like a, a change of heart and decided that sighted people are not witches because she's a complete sociopath like her storyline is absolutely batshit and sylvia herks gives that character this amazing almost surreal sing-songy quality that she just comes across as an absolute lunatic and that's before you even get to the sort of masturbatory prayer sequences which i'm pleased to say are alive and well in season two i love this shit so much i can't even tell you but and i will say this the last thing i'm gonna say on this is this if you gave c a go yes for the time being if you gave c a go for season one you didn't like it give it another chance. The reason I will say this is I think one of the reasons why critics didn't like season one is Apple made three episodes of season one available to critics. Four reviews went out. The, the show doesn't get started until episode four and it doesn't kick in until episode five because those first three are just scene setting. The kids don't even grow up and they're some of the main characters until episode three. I think that it's a show. Season one really built momentum as it went and it wasn't until the end of season one that you really got in to see. And I think now it's kind of properly hit its stride. So give it another go. If I mean, it's been renewed for season three anyway, so I'm safe for a while now but if for no other reason than to keep me happy to make sure that we get you know 80 seasons of this please watch c on apple it's amazing sorry boydie did you have something you wanted to add to that um i find it genuinely um i enjoy it i mean i enjoyed it i enjoyed but i find it genuinely bewildering that it's your favorite thing i Why? can't get because it's the most um, mean I mean, thing ever <laughs> no i know i know I, I don't mean well except like, isn't that there isn't that much of the kind of um, fantasy supernatural no, stuff no, going on? It's not supernatural. It's very grounded. Yeah, it's not supernatural. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, I don't. I didn't mean that. I, I, obviously, it's in your wheelhouse completely. Mm. What I meant was, I don't find it that compelling and um, addictive. <sighs> I just don't find the storytelling, and and I want to. I want to fully. So I'm going to have to 
forced myself to watch these the three. I watched the first one and a half episodes of the, of the second season. But even then, I haven't got. I don't feel it's got the, the the storytelling is propulsive enough to make me that addicted to it. And I find it so. It's I find it do you find it slightly bewildering that you love it so well, much. I was I, propelled. It's very enjoyable. <laughs> Yeah, I, I find it very enjoyable as it goes. And for me, Sylvia Herx as Queen Kane, she is she's the amazing. MVP for me. She's genuinely hilarious. Amazing. Mm. She is genuinely funny and weird and freaky, and she rules it for me. And I, and I agree with Terry that the casting of David Bautista is is, is genius. Mm. Um, you know, who else could you have who's bigger? Yeah, you know, more who makes more Jason Momoa look like a sort and of, hunky? Yeah. yeah, makes Jason Momoa look like me or you. <laughs> um, uh, so. Yeah, but I just and there's things about it that irritate me. Like, for example, I agree with Terry about the lo- the lo- the logic lapses. I think there are logic lapses which are different to. And do you know what your whole thing about how the detail of you know what life would really be like if everyone couldn't see? Well, Stephen Knight created this thing. That's the whole fucking point of it. If he's not going to find the ways to make sh- to make it work, then there's no point in doing it. So the whole thing is uh, we're finding really interesting ways to make it believable that no one can see in this society. The problem is for me is like. That the the dialogue is a weird mix of portentous kind of period speak, where everyone goes, "I am going thou forward to thine enemy." No and one then says it's like, thine. Oh, piss off. They don't, but they, but in the way it is acted, in that way it's, well, it's acted. As Terry said, it's, it's because they're going full Shakespeare. <laughs> I know, but there is bits of the dialogue that are weirdly stilted and portentous. Um, and yet there are other bits where it's very vernacular, like the way Stephen Knight. Um, Writes Peaky Blinders, which I love the way he writes mm. Peaky Blinders. But for me, it's like it should have stuck to that. Really, it's got, it's got. I find the Bultenta stuff a bit irritating, and the way and that, all that it. kind of stuff. Yeah, I can't get I on with that. I love it. Um, <laughs> the violence, I agree. Tell you, the violence is is, is extraordinary, is and, very I, I'm, extreme. I, and I'm there mm. for it. And 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 the action is stuff brilliantly done. But I just, I can't quite embrace it in the way in, in, in to the extent you have I mean I don't think anyone in the world has to be honest it may just be me say. I mean it's got it fans but I don't think anyone loves the show as much as you do even Stephen Knight <laughs> <laughs> you know he's like I've got someone else to run the show it's fine you know it's absolutely fine I just I, I do have a thing for detailed world building and I think what they do with this show just the, the it just it all clicks together perfectly and yes you're absolutely right that is the point of the show but so many fantasy shows or science fiction shows do not nail world building in that way and it's not just about detail it's about detail that just works and feels organic and i think it really does in this uh but look we could bang on about c all day god knows i'd be happy to do a podcast just about this show but let's not because c season two drops on apple on the 27th of august and it's fucking brilliant (laughs) next up we have Vigil, which stars Saran Jones as DCI Amy Silver, who is tasked with investigating a death on board one of the Royal Navy's Trident-carrying nuclear submarines, because, of course. Uh, this was created by Tom Edge, who's worked on Strike and The Crown. And if you've ever wondered what would happen if Line of Duty had a baby with Crimson Tide, then this might just answer <laughs> that question. Boydie, did this submersible drama sink or swim for you i mean first of all right you, you we, we led with c as the first review but fucking hell this is the tv drama event of not only of the week but one of the tv drama events of the year and you've kind of relegated it in the running order there's c it's no c two, point it's no which, c which is going to be watched by about five people yeah and it's then c it's just not c Right. Then there's Vigil, which is BBC One, Sunday night, back holiday Monday, and it's going to be watched by gazillions of people. <laughs> so it is from the people who brought us um, Line of Duty from yep. World Productions. who also make, by the way, um, Save Me, our favourite, mm. uh, Bodyguard, some of the biggest drama hits of recent years. And, you know, sometimes when people say it's from the people who brought you and you think, oh, well, you know, that's a bit disappointing. <laughs> this really yeah. lives up to that. Mm. 
billing, I think, because it's instantly riveting that you've got Saran Jones as a detective um, who's brought in to investigate this death aboard a submarine. So you meet, she doesn't like enclosed spaces as well, um, funnily enough, she, partly due to a trauma that's gone on in, in her life. Um, then you've got, she, so she has got three days to go aboard this in massive, epic nuclear submarine that's got nuclear bombs on board. It's got Trident missiles on board. Someone's died. Everyone, all the blokes, this like 95% blokes aboard this submarine are all like clammy up and don't want to, don't want to, deal with her you've got this incredible cast you've got rose leslie playing her mm. kind of um deputy if you like who's helping her out back on shore and it's her job to to investigate the naval base where these people are based and there's a kind of other subplot involving a, a missing trawler which is the first big scene there's a big action scene that starts with this trawler that goes down so you've got rose leslie, rose leslie playing her kind of deputy you've got the cast including Sean Evans, Marty Compton, Patterson Joseph, who's the who's the, the in charge of the submarine itself. Every role is played by someone. Connor Swindles from um, Sex Education, Angie Mohindra. I mean, there's just like four. Adam James, right? Who everyone will recognise has been on TV. He plays this incredibly posh deputy to <laughs> um, uh, to Patterson Joseph, and he is hilarious. He's so obnoxious and horrible from start to finish that he's brilliantly funny and entertaining. But just the whole concept is. Um, is kind of just in instantly draws you in and it is and i think it is very well written i think it's very well directed um brilliantly acted so but we can't say much about it because they are keeping they don't they want the less said about it but in terms yeah, of the story lines, they want so. a lot of secrets kept quite rightly secret but it has that to use the word i'm going to use the word that i think c doesn't have it has the propulsive storytelling of a line of duty and of a bodyguard. I think it's it, it, all those lessons of how to drive a story are in this. And I think and I was instantly captivated by it, I have to say. The one, my one thing that, is, uh, that I've suddenly realised watching this halfway through, as I mentioned the, the trauma that, um, that Siran Jones' character is going through, that same trauma, which I won't give away what it is, but it's something that is used in everything nowadays. Mm -hmm. Baptiste, mayor, mayor of wherever it was, um, mayor of Easttown, Nine Perfect Strangers. There's a plot device that people now, it seems to be in almost every single, certainly crime drama, if not drama, to show that someone is suffering from a deep thing that's happened in their life that is that is that is traumatic for them and it's used time and time again and i do wish some people would come up with different ways of showing that people have something they need to get over in their lives rather than this particular thing that is in all of these shows but apart from that i really i'm in massively deep into vigil already and i can't wait to watch the rest of it this is this is brilliant and look you know it's it could be a bit of a hard sell because you do have the line of duty thing but as boyd says we know how kind of you know it turns out a third uh, producer who once wandered on set is the, is the person <laughs> who's worked on both or something like that. This is pure quality, and but it isn't the easiest sell because it is a it's a fucking submarine, right? And and it's actually Line of Duty meets Death Boot. That's what this is. And you've got a submarine which isn't exactly the place where a load of action can happen. It's all tight spaces, um, lots of talking, uh, and it's actually. There's one side of it, which is the quality. It is incredible. Mm. So, you know, and that's going to happen when you've got Tom Edge writing it. Um, and you've got directors, including James Strong, who did Broadchurch and is a BAFTA winner. You've got these incredible British filmmakers attached to it. It drips in quality. Some of the shot, there's, there's um, a whole sequence when they bring the submarine up to the surface of the sea 
it's like a movie. It's so brilliantly directed, this thing, so brilliantly directed. The way they use the submarine, almost like a play, and they use the weird configuration of it and the bits where it's bigger than you'd expect and the bits where it's really cramped to really aid the storytelling of the narrative. The, I honestly think one of the best things about this is the direction. The other thing is exactly what Boyd says, which is this incredible cast. So Saran Jones, mm-hmm. who's on a fucking roll at the moment, you know, who was amazing in I Am two weeks ago, but also... Patterson Joseph is absolutely dynamite. Adam James, Rose Leslie, Martin Compton. That's kind of just not even half of the people in it. And, and Connor Swindells. Connor Swindells. But these are people mm. I think who really are brilliant, really fucking dynamite on screen. So as Boyd says, we can't say too much about it. And I, I know exactly what he means about that device. But also I am as compelled by the mystery <laughs> in her private life that we're starting to see come to the surface and the mystery, the crime mystery on the submarine, both of those things running in tandem, the way they're balancing them and using them to piece things together. It's just so expertly, brilliantly done. This is proper British prestige TV. I I think it's pretty much impeccable, I have to say. Um, and I hope everybody gives it a chance and tunes in um, because I think it's going to be loved by everybody. And yeah, I can't say enough good things about it, apart from I want to watch the next one. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's funny. Like, you're absolutely both, you're both 100% right about the device, as we shall call it. And I did roll my eyes a little bit. But I do think when a show is this high quality, you forgive it an awful lot. And nothing, that it, it just didn't matter to me. I was like, yep, yeah, okay, that's a bit hoary, but sure. Because it is so cinematically made. It is stunning to look at. It's incredibly compelling. And boy, you're absolutely right. The storytelling is propulsive. Like you're going at a thousand miles an hour every every second of the show. The first two episodes, we've seen the first two. They were an hour each. I was watching them till one o'clock this morning. I had no plans to watch two. I could not fucking turn it off. <laughs> I swear to God, if they'd give me the whole season, I would still be watching it because it is so compelling. But it's this is classic. It's like Line of Duty. It's like Bodyguard. It's it, This is appointment viewing. This is like everyone in the nation will be watching this and for good reason. And everyone in the nation will be talking about this because it's an incredibly high quality, incredibly compelling piece of storytelling with loads of money behind it. Um, yeah, there's no better way to spend Sunday evening. And now it's on Sunday and the Monday, isn't it? So episode one yeah. is airing. So BBC One, episode one official is airing on Sunday, the 29th. And then episode two is on the Monday as well, both at 9pm. Um, so you can get the first and two then in. Not- and quite rightly, after that, it will be weekly, and they yeah. are not box setting it. Yeah. Unlike every other show on Drama BBC, and I do think it. I think this is the right decision. Thank God, yes. because it's it's a riveting whodunit. As <laughs> you much as say anything. that, like I do, while reserving the right to binge watch all the episodes should the BBC oh, yeah. make them available to us. Of course, but <laughs> I still think the joy of watching it as a weekly event, yeah, is 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 unbeatable. Um, and I also want to mention quickly that a bit like the other thing I had in common with Lionel Duto to say is, which becomes more clear in episode two, without giving too much away, is that it's also looking at the institution yes. of the Royal Navy and there's a yes. whole that whole it becomes a big huge conspiracy thing possibly yeah. which I love there's nothing I love more <laughs> I, I, mean, I love submarine movies I wouldn't mention that mm. you know and I I, I I love conspiracy theory things and I love things that explore institutions explore that. it's got all of that and it's a fucking yeah. genius who done it. it all those elements there are a together. lot of plot threads in this and it co- covers an awful lot of ground I think this is why it makes it so compelling and, but then a submarine is, is is you know it's it's a pressure cooker isn't it it's it's a genius 
place to set any kind of drama. But something like this, who done yeah. it in this confined space? You know, I think they describe it as was it like something like three football pitches long or two football pitches long, and then a, a few double decker buses high. Like it's 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 huge submarine relative but it's still a very compact place she's always banging her head and knocking herself on things there's no privacy there's nine people in a bunk room and when you sleep on a bunk when she gets in there a little bit claustrophobic and the <laughs> the ceiling's about three inches from her nose uh, mm. it's i mean you feel the panic just watching her be in it and that's before you even get into all the sort of plots and what's going on and like the way line of duty does it twists and it turns and it wrong foots you and it's going one direction but now it's going in another direction and you know i'm i'm still not sure where this is going to go it has me on the absolute edge of my seat love it and the, the way it bits. One more, well the way tom edge the writer uses the um you know the the the, the, the language of of the of the um, crew yeah. is so brilliantly handled as well. I love the way because uh, they have to explain things to her of what you know. They call it a boat yeah. rather than a, not ship a ship or something. It's a all boat. that stuff, yeah, all that stuff is so brilliantly handled. I think he's he is a fantastic uh, writer, Tom Edge. But isn't also I love the idea that it's an inversion of the traditional dynamic. Like she is a DCI, she is an investigating senior police officer, and nobody gives a flying fuck because the rule of law doesn't yeah, right. exist yes, on a nuclear submarine. Yeah. Only the yeah. navy exists there, so she yeah. finds all her authority stripped away and it's trying to conduct an investigation where nobody cares so there's i think there's an element of sexism to it as well because she's a woman and there's an element of she's a civilian and she's an outsider and no one wants to talk to her and it's just yeah it's 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 a genius idea perfectly executed uh vigil then which begins on sunday the 29th on bbc one Next this week, we have Amazon's Kevin Can Fuck Himself, which is a dark comedy from AMC, which is Annie Murphy as Alison McRoberts, a sitcom wife, shall we say, in the classic mold. But there is a lot more to this show than first appears. Isn't that right, Terry? Did you like this or can this show, like Kevin, go and fuck itself? I should say that in honour of this show, I've changed my name on this pilot recording to James Can Fuck Himself. Um, I know noticed that yeah. it's less good than boydies which is boydie voss yeah. which i appreciated more so um so we were we often have debates about which shows to cover on this podcast and the ones are there are ones that are absolute definites like vigil for example this week which, and see and, um, well yeah well, <laughs> less, less well certain i'd say but we were talking about what the third one was and boyd threw kevin can fuck himself in and i knew very little about it boyd said it was quite edgy we thought oh we'd give this a go and so i came to watch it last night and it started and i was like why the fuck are we reviewing one of these awful American sitcoms? I hate this shit. So it's your classic multi-camera, saturated, like lights a go-go, canned laughter, bright studio, the whole shebang. And there's an irritating man-child in classic <laughs> sitcom husband um, way. So he is Kevin of the title. Um, and it looks exactly like all of those sitcoms from years gone by. There is obviously one um, called Kevin Can Wait, which we will get to in a bit. But there's a wisecracking neighbour, her brother and Kevin's best friend, who's absolutely fucking stupid. Kevin's father. There's all the kind of characters you'd expect in the sitcom world. And then there's Alison, who's played by Shit's Creek, Annie Murphy, now, as the sitcom wife, she's hot, but she's a complete pain in the arse, um, nags him, kind of sucks the fun out of his life. 
And she's just the punchline, even if she doesn't really get the joke, because why would she? She's just the sitcom wife. So I'm kind of rolling my eyes and thinking I'm fucking going to like tell Boyd about himself when I see him. And then (laughs) she leaves the room and suddenly you're in a single camera, gritty prestige drama and you are seeing the miserable existence she mainly lives, the mundanity of her life that she hates and the casual cruelty of her husband who was just portrayed as the funny, you know, no harm man child who never grows up. And it's an absolutely fucking genius idea by the creator Valerie Armstrong, which is simply what's really going on for the sitcom wife. How much does she resent her husband? How complicit is the studio in that sense, but actually the wider world in letting her husband get away with dismissing her and and her constantly being on the fringes and the butt of the joke. And what the question really is, what would happen if the sitcom wife just decided she's fucking had enough? And what (laughs) it becomes is one of the most brilliant unpickings of Toxic masculinity and female rage. I can ever remember seeing. I fucking fell hard for this show. And the fascinating thing is, the play, it's a play on the title because Kevin Can Wait is one of these sitcoms. I don't, I don't think it's massive here, but it's big in the States. And it, it kind of became a bit notorious because the wife got basically killed off like halfway through the run and they just brought in another one. And I think it was kind of the most egregious example of how disposable, um, redundant and kind of on the fringes these women are in these sitcoms and always have been through sitcom history. And it isn't just centering the wife and saying, what is the wife going through to make this? I mean, it's, it's radical television. Because what they do is they don't use, just use the sitcom and exaggerate that scenario to be able to tell, quote unquote, the real story over here. What they've done, which is genius, is they commit to both equally. So the sitcom isn't just there to be ripped apart. They make the sitcom bit like it's actually a sitcom. So the jokes have to stand up. So it has to be crafted properly. The way it's shot and lit and all of that, they commit to it like they are creating a sitcom. But then the other half of the show, which is basically Mayor of Easttown, but maybe a little bit angrier, like <laughs> that, they they make also brilliantly, like the writing is brilliant. She, I mean, Christ almighty, Annie Murphy is absolutely phenomenal and the way that they kind of the details in this are brilliant there's a moment in her kind of grim reality where she um which is all kind of in dark shades and she picks up a cockroach off her previously what looked like a shining gleaming kitchen floor she picks up a cockroach with a dream home brochure the brochure that had been used in the sitcom as this sign of affluence and and hope and it's so i'm like i know i'm ranting now but it's because i abs- i just think this is fucking brilliant the fact that something like this is still being made a the idea itself is like it just is genius but the way it's done the performances 
the way that the kind of casual cruelty of Kevin is kind of flagged in the sitcom, but not in a heavy-handed way. They trust you to be able to draw the line and to understand that it's all a case of perspective. And she commits, in the gritty part especially, she absolutely commits to that role to kind of... what She's like, it's not even though, and I think some people go, oh, it's just a... a story of a woman going mad that that's her having a nervous breakdown it isn't that is like her realizing clearly after years of marriage that this man does belittle her and dismiss her and and treats her as unimportant and patronizes her and she's really just fucking reached her limit and it's such a kind of almost healthy representation of female anger and what men who treat their wives like that can do and what that builds up to over years I loved every minute of this and I'm going to keep watching it and I want everybody to watch it. And I don't think it's going to be everybody's cup of tea at all, but I just think it's so bold and so brilliant and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since um, the end. I love the fact that um, you didn't know what the conceit no. of this show was because there's like no one. I mean, I because obviously I read up on it and knew it was what it was, what the idea was, and you know, it's like being able to go and see Psycho, and not knowing that Janet Lee gets killed off in the first twenty yeah. minutes. Like that, that is a brilliant moment because it is, it is one of the best ideas I think for a show for years and years and years. It's such a brilliant, ingenious idea, and as you say, to to the, the way. The tone, the tone. When the tone shifts from the sitcom to the dark drama, it is so such a jolt each time, really. Kind of, and that's a lot of that is due to the writing, but a lot of it is due to Annie Murphy's performance. Her facial expressions of just like when often there's like not that much dialogue. You're just watching the reality of a situation sink in to her miserable existence in Worcester, Massachusetts. By the way, I've been to Worcester, Massachusetts, where this is set, and it's like a joke. Worcester is like a joke in Massachusetts to people who live there that it is like. It's like Romford, Essex, because I come from Essex, so I can say that. But it's like a real bleak, it's a bleak town. And there's a line about, you know, oh, people say Worcester's up and coming, and they're like, Worcester is not up and coming. Um, there's all that stuff. It, the, the bleakness of it. And for me, the only question about this show then is, considering you've got Annie Murphy who's superb. And by the way, Eric Peterson, as Kevin, is so unattractive <laughs> and so awful yeah. and dislikable that he's brilliant as well. Mm. In that, well, that is a thankless task to play that role, but he does a brilliant job making him really awful. And what I love about it, she roams around town, you know, in her daily life, going to like different stores and bars and restaurants, cafes or whatever, and everyone else is much more attractive than he is. It's like she, you can see like the longing in her even, even there. But for me, the only question about this show is, can it possibly live up to this incredible central idea and i think she does pull it off valerie armstrong the the the, the writer and creator but i wonder what whether i i mean i'm going to carry on watching it but it's a real it's it's quite bleak it's quite difficult and, and it's almost like inherent in the whole idea is that difficulty and it reminded me a little bit of wandavision of the early episodes yes, of wandavision definitely. where they're where they're using that sitcom form and in fact not only that there's actually it's, it's in wandavision i'm pretty from memory there's in that first episode they bring over the boss don't they to yep. dinner and in this she brings the boss in to the it's, it's almost like so similar in those mm. ways in the way and that they break the tone as well yeah, right. And it's almost like, but testing you, can you endure watching <laughs> this traditional sitcom with the laughter track and the terrible, terrible jokes to get to the incredibly moving and profound um, depiction of, as you say, this woman just realising her life is fucking bleak. I think I, I think the, the, the idea is so genius that it's hard, but she's doing a pretty damn good job of making the show itself live up to that idea. 
Yeah. It it is one of the most ingenious things I think I've ever seen. Genuinely, in terms of being bold and groundbreaking, doing something I've never seen before and executing it so well. Just absolute hats off. It's incredible. However, my main issue with this a little bit is, again, I found that there's there's a there's a discordance to this intentional a tonal discordance like there's a bit where like he's like ribbing her for you know oh you never finish anything and she comes out she's like do i never finish things or does he take them from me and it's really really fucking dark and that shift that emotional shift i found over time became quite a challenge for me i think it took me out of the show i found the device a distraction from the narrative which for me was that very bleak noirish sort of drama which is the show i wanted to watch and my hatred for those kind of awful traditional saturated sitcoms from that kind of period like i, I those I, I really struggled through those sequences because i hate them so much um but i you know i get what they were doing it's a classic working class sitcom and, it, and all of these have the same thing exactly as terry said where these women's lives are hell on earth and they just laugh their way through it but he makes her miserable and this shows exactly what it must be like to live in that kind of relationship but the thing is i found that that kind of vision of that hell of an existence and the way it's so successfully almost kind of lampoons every one of those american working class sitcoms that's come before it was so powerful it wasn't entertaining like it was just it was it was very brutal and bleak and i found it quite difficult to enjoy it and then as i said the device itself that kind of discord between the two tones i found those kind of those emotional gymnastics i had to go through to stay on the horse and follow this story i found quite draining and i think i think as that goes on i think that device you know i like i said i've only seen the first episode would have worn on me an awful lot so this is one of these shows where is it brilliant absolutely it's completely genius i cannot fault it in its execution or the way it's done i think it's amazing but is it entertaining? And I think my answer is no. I didn't enjoy watching it, and I probably won't continue watching it. But I'm glad I've seen it, and I'm glad we did it on this show, because I think everyone should have a chance to experience what this is, because it's fucking genius. Does that I make any sense? I knew that would be your reaction. That I knew- why, does it need to be yeah. ent- like, why does it need to be entertaining? Like, Well, for me, it, for me it does, or I won't watch it. Yeah, well, <laughs> That's is, just me. This is why you can't watch certain things, right? So, yes, so yeah, 100%. I will watch... So. I will watch This Is England, um, the TV sh- series, which were arguably way more bleak than the films. Um, mm. And that is hard to watch, but I feel like it is worth watching because of, you know, the harder emotions that you're talking about. I, I'm with you because the sitcom bits are, are arguably the hardest bits to watch because, oh, 100%. because yeah. you're seeing yeah. the flippancy and the dismissal and, you know, in the bleak bits, at least you feel like you're getting some truth and you're, you, you, she's working through that stuff. In yes. the sitcom stuff, it's, it's you see the abuse behind the laughter, right? And you have The to- sitcom is more bleak yeah. than the drama stuff because you see it through the prism of the drama and it cuts yeah. you to the soul. Like, it's so deeply upset. It's really twisted. And it reminded me of, remember Natural Born Killers? Mm-hmm. You remember the scene in Natural Born Killers where they're talking about how she's being abused by her father and they set it in a sitcom kind of genre with a laugh track mm. to kind of paper over the, how nasty the scene is. And it makes it so much more upsetting than if they'd just done it straight. And this is the same way. Like, showing you her the hell that is her life through that comedy lens is heartbreaking. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. And, it, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It is tough going. But what I, so all I'd say is, is to the normal people out there, um, I just say, like, <laughs> James is using entertaining in a different way, which is you. there are things you find difficult to watch emotionally 
And that puts you off watching it, doesn't it? But equally, equally, I do think the discordant stands. I think some people, and I think quite a few people, will probably struggle with the constant transitions back and forth because it it is a barrier. But but it's the point. So without it, the show wouldn't be so... The the whole point of the flip between the tones, what that does Mm. to you as the viewer, where that, how that challenges you, that's inbuilt into the very bones of the show because that's the conceit the conceit is these two perspectives you're constantly switching between i don't think it's a barrier so much because it it's fundamentally what what makes the show what it is because if it was just a sitcom it would be dreadful and if it was just a a gritty drama it would probably be you know much more actually weirdly more Mm. hard work whereas this this central conceit is built on swapping between those two things. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, 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 but I also think, I think there is, I think it's definitely, uh, uh, for me, the actual triumph of it is, is that uh, the word entertaining, but she does manage to make it um, very watchable in the end. I think there's the ending of that first episode, there's a spectacular moment towards the end of the first episode that really, for me, it's like that yeah. is what really kept me thinking, right, I've got to carry on watching this. So uh, to, to James's point, I think it's not just, I think it's, in theory, it's because it's a massive challenge, isn't it? To make it, to make a painfully bad sitcom mm. bit watchable and a really yeah. dark drama bit watchable. But I think it is watchable because of what she does in, within that, within both of those contexts. Well, Kevin Can Fuck Himself drops on Amazon on Friday, the 27th of August. Finally this week, we have The Walking Dead, the 11th and final season of The Walking Dead. Well, sort of, given that it's a double-length season split into two parts and broadcast over two years, which you could just call two seasons, but let's not get hung up on that. Um, much as it would have amused me to once again drop Terry into the midst of this show without any context, I feel we may have exhausted that joke with C. So instead, I will just run through this very, very briefly. Um, so I've seen the first two episodes of this, and for me, it, it felt quite fresh and exciting in a way that The Walking Dead, I think, has been trying to do of late. Um, I really enjoy season 10, but this season 11, it starts with a two-parter, Akka on part one and part two, and it's very, very focused. It's very driven. It's a very propulsive opener to the season. It's really, really good. It starts with an amazing set piece, which I will not ruin, but it's a proper like, wow, they must have been so proud of themselves when they came up with this. Um, It's great. And I think what what this also does is it gets right into the heart of the Maggie and Negan thing. Maggie, Lauren Cohen, who obviously left the series and now has come back, and Negan, who, lest we forget, killed her husband Glenn with a baseball bat, they have not had that kind of face-off. They've not had that conflagration where they come together and sort of thrash that out. So I think having those two characters actually spend proper time together is one of the things I was most excited about going into this season. And actually, there's there's a lot of that even in the first episode. So this one, you've got two sort of storylines. There's the Commonwealth they're going into, which is like a society that's trying to rebuild the old world. Uh, and so you've got Eugene and Yumiko and uh, Ezekiel trying to get into the Commonwealth. And then you've got Maggie, who's leading them to Meridian, which is a place a community that she was in where where a nasty band of ne'er-do-wells essentially killed all of her 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 companions there so you got the kind of two competing threads in this early episode so it's very tense it's very focused um it does feel like 
you know, they're ramping it up for this final season. I think there's some pretty interesting things, shall we say, coming. Uh, and the first half of this two-parter ends on one hell of a cliffhanger as well. So look, I mean, look, this is, we're 11 years in. If you're not watch, watching The Walking Dead at this point, you're not going to start now. So I guess I'm preaching to the converted anyway. But I do think if you have drifted away from The Walking Dead, I'd go back and watch season 10 and then go into 11 because actually it's really picked up the pace. Since Angela Kang actually has become uh, has become the showrunner, uh, I'm really interested that she's, I think she's injected uh, a, a sort of a new lease of life into this show. But uh, if you want to hear more about this, we are have actually recorded a Walking Dead special podcast. Uh, myself, Beth and Chris did that, uh, which will be up, I think, this week. Uh, and that includes my interview with Angela Kang as well. So I spoke to her about, well, a little bit about the show because she's been with it since season two, in one capacity or another. I spoke to her a little bit about the show as a whole and a little bit about this season in particular and where it's going to go in the future of the show. Uh, so if you like The Walking Dead, then I'm sure you'll be watching this anyway, but do check out our Walking Dead special, which will be on the Pilot TV feed and actually the Empire podcast feed as well. Um, and The Walking Dead Season 11, the first half of The Walking Dead Season 11, drops on Monday, August the 23rd on Star on Disney+. Plus. Um, what else is out this week, Boydie? Gossip Girl, the reboot yes. of Gossip Girl was, was what we elected not to cover. Yeah, it's a shame because I, I've watched a couple of episodes of this, the the, re, the Gossip Girl reboot, um, which is really entertaining, actually. It's really fun. Um, it's uh, Joshua Safran, who created the original Gossip Girl, is back. Mm. And I think he's great at doing this kind of ensemble um, drama. He's brilliant at kind of... of showing you what characters are like, getting you to know what how, what characters are within about the first five, ten minutes of meeting them. Yeah. And this is like, it's kind of as you'd imagine, it takes Gossip Girl and it definitely make, puts it in the middle of this world we're living in with influences. So one character's an influencer. Wasn't Gossip Girl out like five minutes ago? Like, this is what makes me feel really it was old. Like they're remaking Gossip Girl. It doesn't feel that old. And it finished in 2012, which is nearly ten years ago, James. Oh, God, but it's very. But this gossip girl is much more um, uh, diverse with, in terms of sexuality and gender. There's LGBT characters all over the place. There's um, non-white characters because let's face it, the original was pretty white. It was very. Yes, it that was. was that, that was its setting, to be fair. But this yeah. addresses all of that. But it, it, I, I really enjoyed it. I have to say, um, and it's dropping all in one go on the BBC iPlayer on Wednesday. And they're also showing it at 10.35 at night on BBC One. And this is part mm. of my general mystery of BBC spending quite a lot of money, <laughs> presumably, on HBO and HBO Max uh, acquisitions. It's so weird why this is on the BBC and not Skylantic, but I'm not going to bang on about it anymore. It's great that everyone can see it on the BBC. Yeah, that everyone in it is hateful. It's worth bearing that in mind. But I guess that is Gossip Girl's thing a lot of the time. So. Yeah, no, some, I would say there's enough not non-hateful characters for it to be enjoyable. Mm. A lot of Ellen's. A lot of yeah, but you think everyone's a fucking Bellum. We've that is that. also true. Uh, what else is happening? A Britannia's third Britannia, season. Yeah, yes, I like Britannia. Twenty fourth. Britannia's fun. You know, I I really enjoy it. Yeah, it is, I'm not it a is. fan. I'm a big fan of David Morrissey's generally, but oh, I, David I, Morrissey I is so good. Couldn't yeah. get on with with Britannia, okay. unfortunately. That's interesting because it's a bit like it's it's not a million miles away from your from the stuff you like. Mm, mm, no, mm. I, there are tonal issues with Britannia, which I think I've mentioned uh, before. It doesn't okay. take itself seriously enough. At right, times, yeah, it, it feels funny. like we've gone into a Monty Python sketch and i'm like i can't be dealing with this uh, what are oh, you I doing like, i like that a yeah. little bit yeah it's funny, see, yeah. that 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 doesn't sit well with me okay um, anything else you'd like to mention or are fbi we there? fbi and fbi most wanted if you want um as a double bill on a sky oh, witness a dick wolf it, double bill dick wolf double bill um back on thursday for their new seasons of both those shows which for fans of, of procedural dick wolf procedurals they will lap it up <laughs> 
It's also the final season of Wentworth, the Prisoner Cell Block Eight oh, remake, which I can't yeah. Im- I can't understand why Terry doesn't watch religiously. But that uh, that drops on the twenty fourth. I've talked about it on yeah, this podcast you have multiple about times. Yeah. Have you? Yes. See, so it, cu- it cuts both ways. You don't listen to anything I say, and I don't listen to anything you say. Long may it continue. Well, for another week. Still going to continue um, that long. Okay. Well, I know what your pick of the week is going to be, but tell me anyway. Vigil. Um, no, for me, it's um, Kevin can fuck himself with Vigil, a very tight second, two brilliant shows this week. and Three C. brilliant shows this week, because <laughs> my pick of the week is obviously C, and Vigil is my close second. So there you go. Well, so there you go. James, James has chosen to put in third place the show that deals with toxic masculinity. <laughs> Take from that what you will. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, that is it for this 150th episode of the Pilot TV podcast. But don't sign off just yet, because while we didn't throw a big old 150th birthday party this week, that's only because we are postponing the festivities until next week. Because to mark Terry's 151st and final appearance on the Pilot TV podcast, we're going to attempt, attempt being the keyword here, to stage a special live episode of the show on Thursday night. Now, don't worry, though, this will not require tickets or social distancing. It's all going to be virtual. Now, this could, and in all likelihood will, go horribly wrong. But the plan is to record the next show at 6pm on Thursday, the 26th of August. That's this Thursday at 6pm, British Summertime, BST, and stream it live over the interwebs most likely on the empire youtube channel now (laughs) i'm even looking at a way that we might even be able to have some live call-ins to the show so get your questions for terry ready for example why didn't you finish the leftovers and the expanse is brilliant which member of the rossinante crew would you date and why you can have those for nothing so it's going to be quite the event terry are you psyched about this psyched psyched hear that she's absolutely psyched so do stay tuned to our twitter feeds at james c dyer at boyd hilton and at terry underscore y as we will be confirming the details for that over the next couple of days it's going to be an emotional one people so do prepare yourselves but until then this is our 150th pilot out <laughs>